Hi, I'm Deb Crow, and welcome to season two of the Heart Centered Leadership Podcast. This is a podcast where we connect, learn, and laugh together with strong leaders from all over the globe. Here, you will learn from peers you haven't even met yet. You will gain new tools to add to your leadership toolbox. Because whether you're a C-suite executive or a first-time entrepreneur, we all contend with challenges and there's always room for improvement if we choose to seek it. So please pull up a chair and listen in. This is the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. Welcome back to Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. One of the things that has been a trend in building this global community is the connection with people, which you all know is my definition of heart-centered leadership. It is honoring your connection with people. But the other element of that is that this show is reconnecting people that have been separated for several decades, whether it be university, elementary school, a first job. And I want to reach out to the listeners who have messaged me, especially the first week of 2022, sharing that they were so happy to hear that I interviewed someone and that they had lost touch and reconnected. So I bring that up to you this morning because the gentleman that I'm interviewing this morning, Dan Nordberg, Norenberg, pardon me, he came to me by way of Nicole Heinemann, who was one of the most amazing executive coaches that I interviewed in season one. She is all about authentic leadership, her book, who she is. She is a woman of class and grace, and I just love her dearly. And she said to Dan, you you should call Deb and get on the show. So here we are three months later. So Dan, I'm going to welcome you to the show because I have so many questions and I need to keep this within 30 minutes. So I am so glad to meet you. We get to see each other face to face and I am delighted to have you on Imperfect. So welcome. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Morning, your time, afternoon, uh, Central European time. Thanks for having me. You are a speaker, a coach, a consultant extraordinaire. We're not going to talk about how many decades. We're just going to say, like me, you're well-seasoned. Yes. And let's jump into these leadership questions. First of all, thank you for gifting me your beautiful new book called Executive Ownership, Creating Highly Effective Leadership Teams. I know you quickly threw this in an envelope for me when you were jetting from Germany to Miami and wanted to make sure I got it. I read a lot of books. I get sent a lot of books. I love the look of this book. I love the feel of this book, but I love the realness and I love how heart-centered it is from page one to the end. So my first question is, This book is all about executive ownership. I mean, the title itself gives me goosebumps, but you've anchored it in three principles. And I would love for you to share with the listeners how you develop these principles and more importantly, why you put them in the sequence you did. Well, in terms of the sequence, I'm not sure if I can recall them exactly in the sequence that I wrote them, but I can talk a little bit about that. First of all, let me say that thank you for your comments. I listened to your podcast. You've had several great guests on. You're very thoughtful, very intentional, and it's really an honor to be with you. 
and the comments you'd make about the book, they, they, they make me feel good. I wrote the book initially because I simply wanted to have a, a reservoir or a place where I could collect the experiences of the 150 plus leadership teams that I've worked with over the last 15 years on three different continents. And that was my initial impression for the book. So it was just going to be a workbook for me. And then second of all, I got to thinking, well, maybe some of my clients would like to see how I use their experiences in this book. And so then I started thinking about my existing clients and I thought, well, there've got to be some clients that are, you know, outside of that. And so that's why I expanded and that's when it became a book and then Springer picked it up and it's become a published piece of work. So that's, that's a little bit of the backstory of the book. And for me, this whole thing around leadership teams is, is very significant because what I saw when I first walked into the C-suite was that, you know, I didn't come from being an existing CEO. I was in, let's say, middle to senior management, line management in California before I came to Europe because I couldn't get a job here being American. I moved to the consulting side. So I sort of came from the, from the, from the street up into the C-suite as a consultant and coach. And what I saw was, and probably your experiences uh, as well, is that highly talented people, highly ambitious people, uh, really with a lot of business know-how, but as an organizational unit, they didn't really work well as a leadership team. And one of the principles that I'll just point on, you asked about three, but I'm just going to focus on one. And that's what I call the Lincoln Law, or some people call it the oxygen mask rule. And the rule is on the airplane that we all hear on every flight with every airline to every destination is that in the case of a turbulence, take the mask first, take help yourself first before you could help others. You know, at first glance, that might look sort of um, greedy or self-centered, but what I saw and why that relates to my book and, and leadership teams is that also often these guys, men and women in the C-suite, from the very first day they step in there, they have so many issues to deal with. And they often overlook, let me say, the, the health of the leadership team and start firefighting in the business. And as a result, they never really get grounded and fully utilize their full potential. And so that's, that's one of the principles that I would focus on. And what I do is to help leadership teams, first of all, do a stress test. How resilient are the relationships in the leadership team? Do we have a, a framework for purposeful practices that define our unique contribution and that guide our you know, standards of excellence for team guidelines? And do we have a results-driven structure that allow communication, decision-making to really flourish? I mean, to, to name a few. So that's really what my work is about. And what's interesting is that if we look at all the organizations, you know, there are about 50 million organizations in the world that do over 100 million in sales. And only one out of 20 leadership teams in these organizations has any sort of process for continuous improvement for their leadership team. So my feeling is, if you don't have a process for continuous improvement in your leadership team, how can you drive continuous improvement across the entire organization? Oh boy, lots to unpack there. So let me give the listeners your three principles. The first one is leadership is a team endeavor, which you, you've basically framed for us. The second one, my favorite, leadership and then development in brackets is top down, not bottom up. And then the exceptional leadership team practice the Lincoln Law. I just frame it in a different way. And, and this is what I love about talking to other coaches is, is we kind of put into the mix of what we offer, the combination of our upbringing, our life experience, our academic trajectory, our work trajectory, 
and all the exposures and experience that we've had to good, bad, and indifferent leadership. So when you talk about the Lincoln law, it's that self-care piece, but that Mm -hmm. self-care piece cannot be developed or even derived or set as a foundation until that leader looks in the mirror and does the inner work, the self-audit and says, I am self-aware. So mm-hmm. I, I love that. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it lends nice into my next question. So my next question has had permanent residency right back to season one, episode one. And every leader has been asked this question. What imperfections does Dan bring to his heart-centered leadership? Mm. Laughing is allowed. Jokes. Well, well, let me, I'm just reflecting because it's, I think the way that you frame that question is very true. We are a, we are a product of all our experiences. And, um, you know, growing up, I, uh, I grew up in the Midwest and, uh, you know, big football country and things like that. I, I developed rather late in life for a, as a young boy. And so I was rather small when some of my peers were, you know, already, you know, their voice had changed and they were already over six foot and I was still sort of struggling. And, and, and in that same picture, my father was the high school principal of our school. Let's say a good principal, but one that really set the law and the, the discipline. So let's say around the town, there was a certain population of students that weren't, you know, real keen on my father. And of course, they weren't going to take my father on. So the next best thing was was Dan Nornberg, who was like probably half their size. So I developed sort of a process, long answer to your question here, but I sort of developed a, this need to be really be liked and to try to be the, to keep people happy and amused and entertained and to sort of for self-preservation, if you will. And then as I moved through life and got into my first leadership roles in California, I really saw that being life, being liked can also be a setback and also be a bit of a hindrance for a leader. And there I learned how to overcome that by uh, seeking to be respected as opposed to seeking affection. So I would say that was one of my imperfections, uh, you know, starting out was this real strong desire to be liked. And I think a second one had to do with growing up, uh, maybe comparing myself to others. And, uh, you know, and there's all, and my father really reminded me, so that's a really dangerous proposition to compare yourself to others because we as human beings are as unique as can possibly be described. So he said, whenever you're comparing yourself to someone, you're either going to think that probably you're better than them, which is certainly not a good place to be, or you're going to find that you're not as good as them, which also leaves you sort of not, not in a good place. And so what I, I learned through those conversations with my father and some other really good bosses was not to compare myself to others, but to look how I could learn from them. So I seek out people like, you know, my mentors include guys like Dr. Marshall Goldsmith, Alan Weiss uh, in, in Rhode Island, and uh, Dr. Yuri Boschak, who's a Canadian who runs the Global Forum for uh, strategic learning and leadership. So I've tried to like align myself with, you know, really movers and shakers who really challenge me. I don't compare myself to them, but I do actively seek to learn from them. I don't remember who said it, but I know Warren Buffett talks about it a lot. You know, surrounding yourself by people that scare you from a knowledge, cognitive, emotional, intellectual, that's where you learn. And if we look at it as executive coaches, how do we support and coach our C-suite leaders? They surround themselves with an executive team who can handle and run all the delegation coming down from the CEO in areas that he or she 
is not, you know, well-versed in or doesn't need to be well-versed in. It's, it's just so interesting to me when we look at the alignment, but that is such a great story. One of the reasons that I was so attracted to you initially was this imperfect, the heart-centered leadership positive, I, that, 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 that term imperfect, you know, which you call that out, you know, you make that so public, you make it so genuine, which I really appreciate. And I think it's, it's, it's kind of part and parcel to my work with leadership teams, because at the end of the day, this expressing perfection, expressing imperfection, let me say, is really vulnerability, which is really how I start my book. And I would say that's one of the core things that you wouldn't think about. You know, when you're, when you're you know, reading all the reports about top executive teams, you're thinking, you know, clear strategy, goals, uh, unique technology. But it's really a, a group of men and women's ability to express their vulnerability, where they're struggling with each other. Because at the end of the day, I support a lot of leadership teams and some for a few months and some for a few years. But at the end of the day, what I remind them, there is no better resource that can help them improve and play to the best of their game than the people that surround them in their leadership team, whether that's an executive team or a strategic team. So our ability, like you said, to express our imperfection, to be to be vulnerable is, is, is a game changer. And I think that we're still in the midst of that moving away from that old genre of I've got to be perfect. I've got to have all the answers. I've got to wear this coat of armor. Uh, I think a lot of things are leading to that change, the diversity, the speed, uh, you know, the, 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 the blend of men and women in, in leadership practice together. So uh, that's why that just reminded me of that when you mentioned that. When we're on the other side of receiving, I'm like you. I came from the trenches. I came from management. I had four bosses in a row in my young, early 20s, right after my dad died. And all I could anchor in my mind and my heart was my Irish Nana saying to me, be kind always. Not everyone's going to like you. You alluded to that. Not everyone's going to be nice to you. But you have the control to always be nice because when someone's not nice to you, it has nothing to do with you. And I'm also a yoga teacher. So I pull in a lot of that somatic modality, mindfulness. When a CEO says to me, you want me to do what? We need to calm your mind. We need to do some meditation. I want you to master the art of heart. And you can't do that without clarity. And so when they tell me they're too busy, that's when we have to put the brakes on. So it's interesting to see how we all have our own individualistic heart-centered approach, but being kind costs nothing. Being kind, you don't have to have initials after your name. One of the, the, the proud things that I'm trying to do with this podcast is to show everyone in the world that we're all leaders. It doesn't mean because you have stature and title that you're automatically a leader because we've seen many leaders who have that and are not heart centered. So I don't think the world is shifting. I think it is because of the unprecedented times. I think heart centered leadership is always there where it's been lacking or disjointed is business acumen doesn't have it as an inclusion. And I'm slowly changing that at the college level with heart-centered leadership courses that I'm developing. And it's that wall of resistance that you talk about. And it's people like you and Nicole and other executive coaches out there going, wait a minute, 
It's always been here. We need to bring it to the forefront. And this is why you're not going to be seen as less than because perfection is an intangible reality and it's being on a roundabout and never being able to get off. Yes. It's a dangerous, repetitive cycle of behavior. Okay. My third leadership question, these are just flowing and and I didn't even tell you what I was going to ask you. Do you see what happens in these serendipitous moments? I'm, I'm enjoying it. Share with us why, and I love this question, and I love how you frame this in your book, why are high-performing executive teams so rare? Well, I, number one, it's simply not on the radar, right? I mean, in, if we look at history, business history, case studies, business particularly in Western Europe and North and South America, it's about the heroic leader, right? It's about the, it's about the individual. And all through time, we sort of put this primarily men and to a lesser degree, women, unfortunately, uh, on this uh, individual part. And, and I believe that we've spent, and we sort of constructed our whole leadership development now around, around individuals. So while individual leadership development is important and it is vital, no matter what kind of uh, team construct you look at, whether it's a symphony, whether it's a football team, baseball team, cricket team, rugby team, whatever, these group of men and women spend a lot of time with a coach working and learning together as a unit. And in business, unfortunately, we spend far too much time coaching players and not investing in the leadership team. And often human resources, which is a you know, vital function, is often working, let's say, maybe to the middle level of management. And when I'll inquire to someone in, in, in learning and development or HR about, well, how is the senior leadership team you know, getting support for the challenges you know, that they're facing, I'll often get like, that's out of bounds for us. You know, they do their own thing, or maybe occasionally they'll go off into a country club business school type of thing. And, uh, and so I think that's one of the reasons is that number one, the majority of tools and processes and inventories that we've built to measure leadership effectiveness and to support leadership has been based on the individual. It hasn't been based on the team. And I think that's going to change. Uh, I think this is a big game changer. I think the organizations that begin to put more of a focus on developing uh, leadership team effectiveness will have cascading effects on organizational culture, on business results, on strategic effectiveness, and just being a better place to work. I'm just going to give a mic drop amen to that. You know, what's interesting to me is I lost five executives 10 years ago when I was case managing because Mm. they worked their way up the ladder They swallowed their ideas, their pride. They wanted to just stay focused on hitting that proverbial glass ceiling and getting to the top. And they participated in toxic positivity. And they didn't realize it until they were at hospice. It was very, very sad, but it was such an eye-opener for me. And it made me realize when when I transitioned into coaching, this is legacy work. If we can help more executives share their imperfections, share engagement as a whole for the team, factor in, you know, the principles that you talk about at the beginning of your book, 
it is top down, but doing it in a healthy, vital way and showcasing that imperfection. And you can do that as a heart-centric leader. So you talk about, my fourth question, you talk about creating an ownership epidemic. How serendipitous is that right now? Your book comes out, you've got this proposed in there. And my favorite part was the three levels of engagement that you talked about in your book. Give us an overview on this and tell us how it really impacts business. Well, I, you know, I use a metaphor. I use a short story that some people are familiar with to help draw this distinction. But we, some people have heard the story before about a man or a woman that goes in to check into a hotel. The hotel clerk checks the person in. The man sees a cute little dog standing in the corner and walks over. And he says, you know, does your dog bite? And the guy says, no. The clerk says no. And the man reaches down to pet the dog. And the little dog just about takes the guy's hand off. And the guy turns to the clerk and says, I thought you said your dog doesn't bite. And the clerk said, well, it's not my dog. Now, some of us have seen that story in other contexts, but there's a, there's a whole piece of engagement behind this metaphorical story because the clerk did his job. You know, he, he was responsible. He checked the guest in. We could probably even assume that he was accountable. He's probably accountable for the petty cash. The difference between responsibility and accountability are that responsibility can be shared. Accountability is owned by one person. But what this clerk didn't demonstrate, he didn't demonstrate ownership because if he'd really owned the customer experience, he wouldn't have let that man get near that little ferocious dog. And this happens so often in business where a leader will say to me, you know, I, I've really got to delegate more ownership into my business. And I sort of gently put my hand on their elbow and say, wait a minute, you know, you can delegate responsibility. This is clear. You can also delegate accountability, but you cannot delegate ownership. That's a voluntary practice of wanting to play into the game to pay forward with a deeper level of engagement. And this takes a little while. And this is why to create a culture of ownership, you need a top-down approach to leadership development. You need leaders that can express their vulnerability, that can show their gratefulness for people and the contribution they make and that, that human presence that they bring and showing trust and giving people that's uh, a little more leeway in doing things. And by doing so, that's extending an invitation to join the ownership culture. And then people that say, this organization respects who I am, they make me feel like a whole person. I feel like I can bring my whole self to work. And as a result, I wanna help these people win in even a bigger way, more than my ordinary job. It isn't about just about doing more. It's just about thinking deeply about the, the impact and presence that we bring to a situation. Impact and presence. And you know, choosing that, I like to call it cognitive currency. Mm. Living, it, living in the now. Yeah, yeah. That's that's a big impact. Absolutely. And in that same situation, in the same situation, conversation where a leader saying, I really want to delegate more ownership. You know, my question is, you know, when I've worked in an organization for a while, I say, well, you know, when you have one of your guys who's two or three levels below you and and she wants to take a business trip to Scandinavia to visit an important customer. Do you have any idea how many approvals she has to get before she can spend 500 euros? It has to go through three windows, through three levels, and up to a senior vice president to approve that. That's not a demonstration of an ownership culture. 
Now, it doesn't mean that we leave our doors unlocked at night and we don't uh, practice uh, good procedures in the clean room, but we've got to also look at that ownership comes at a cost. If we want to create a culture where people feel they want to give more, then we have to trust them. Absolutely. Okay, I didn't tell you we were going to do this, but I, I just feel we have to. I love your Nordberg's 90 seconds on YouTube. And we've talked a lot about liked versus mm -hmm. respected. And that mm -hmm. is the actual scenario I'm going to give you. So I've got my cell phone. Okay. I'm going to ask the question. Okay. I'm going to hit the 90 second timer. First time we've ever done this on the show. Do you see how okay. creativity just lands up being spontaneous here? Okay. okay, here's the scenario. When I first started coaching 11 years ago, a CEO said to me in the manufacturing sector, not that it matters, but I want to set the stage for you. Deb, I really love all this heart-centered heart leadership, fluffy stuff. And you're right. If I was a heart-centered leader, everyone in the plant, my management team, my executive team would like me, but I certainly wouldn't be respected. So hold on. I'm going to start the timer. Here we go. Well, as you just described, Deb, this CEO is struggling with this desire to be liked and doesn't recognize the value of being respected. So here's Nuremberg's 90 seconds, and you've already started the clock. What I would remind this CEO is that we all have a natural, a natural desire to have a sense of belonging and to be liked. This is natural. This is human. No man or no woman is an island. At the same time, though, as we move into a business context, being liked by peers is something quite valuable, particularly at an individual contributor level. But as we begin to move up the ladder into leadership, so the so-called leadership pathways, if you will, team leader, leading other leaders, leading a business division, and ultimately becoming the CEO, I then am representing a very broad, diverse band of people. If I'm pleasing the R&D people, I'm going to upset the salespeople. If I please the legal department, I'm going to upset the sales department. For a matter of self-preservation, the more I try to please everyone, the less effective I'll be as a leader. So by being respected, that is being uh, consequent, consistent, is a far better practice uh, for leaders and CEOs uh, to be respected as opposed to liked. 90 seconds. I love it. Thank you. Sharing is caring and caring yeah. is heart-centered. Can I give you a little backstory on that? Just Absolutely. The, this this Nordberg's 90 seconds, which thank you for your comments on that. And I do enjoy doing those. You know, I'm a member of uh, Marshall Goldsmith, you know, one of the leading coaches in the world. He wrote the forward of my book and he has a program called the 100 Coaches Program. He has 100 coaches in, in the USA and 100 coaches in Europe, of which I'm a part of. And Marshall has really not only opened up his heart, he's opened up his treasure chest of tools and said, I just want to share with you guys generally, uh, generously, and then I want you guys to pay this forward and to share it. So I want you to look for opportunities where you can give back to humanity and community without charging people for things at some point in your life. He doesn't put any demands or any, any kind of uh, restrictions on it. And during the COVID lockdown time, I thought, you know, what could I do that I could leverage some of my coaching experiences that are all true experiences, make them anonymous so I can protect the confidentiality, but share that back with the community of learners 
so that should they ever be in a situation like this, maybe they have an additional insight to help them be more effective. So I've really got to thank Marshall Goldsmith for the inspiration to create something and be generous and share that as he has done with me and many others. No, that's beautiful. And, and it's nice that it comes from, again, one of the best thought leaders the pay it forward. That's a heart-centered leadership approach. That's right. Okay, I'm going to switch to my fab four. These okay. are four rapid questions, whatever's sitting on the top of that brilliant mind of yours. Here we go. First question. Tell us something we don't know about Dan. You might know it if you read the book, but you might have missed it. I spent time in prison. And before anybody panics, I, I got to leave at night. But as part of my psychology, criminology degrees, I worked in prisons and helped young people recognize the, let's say, downside of destructive behavior to their freedom, if you will. I love that. Second question, favorite place to visit on Earth? Have you been there yet or is it still to be discovered? My juncture in life, my favorite place is wherever I'm at and really being present and grateful for what I have. You know, I've worked in 26 countries with 76 nationalities. I'm from a very small farm town right outside of Des Moines, Iowa. I love my hometown. I love Iowa. I spent 10 years in California in high tech, lived on the beach, brilliant. Now I live in Munich, Germany. I've traveled all over Europe, Asia, worked in those places too. But the reality is, it's just wherever I'm at, to be really present and enjoy it. I'm not going to have it forever. Nobody's going to get that forever. And I'd say it's just wherever I'm at. I love that. That's living in the now, embracing the moment. Beautiful. Okay, third question. Who's a leader they could be living or passed away that you'd love to have dinner with and why? Thomas Jefferson is on my mind right now. I'm reading a biography about Thomas Jefferson. It was written in 1948, so it's a little bit outdated. And the book's actually falling apart as I read it. I bought it at a used bookstore, maybe in Vancouver a couple of years ago, but it's been on my shelf. And as I read it, the book's falling apart, but you know, he was sort of the pen of the American Revolution where George Washington was the sword and Patrick Henry was the voice. And I'm just... I'm really impressed with Jefferson's personal drive and discipline to learn. He spoke Greek, he spoke Latin, he spoke French, he was learning German. So I'd say Thomas Jefferson. I love that. And we, you and I are going to have a continued conversation about your history buff and looking into business and different people, because I'm doing that too, but that's going to be for another day. Dan, you are delightful. I am so glad Nicole put us together. I can see why she connected us. Thank you for gifting me your book. And I'm grateful for your time and your expertise, but your imperfection and for sharing your heart today. So we are going to close out the show by you finishing this sentence for me. And this is our, excuse me, fab four final question. Please finish this for me. Heart-centered leadership is... The strongest sense of personal expression that we can give. You've been listening to the Heart Centered Leadership Podcast. I'm Deb Crow. If you like what you heard today, please rate and review the show. 
And I'd love it if you'd visit my website at debcrow.com where you can sign up for my newsletter and get access to the Heart-Centered Leadership Toolkit, all free of charge. Thanks for your time and we'll see you again.